Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken to us by your word. Uh, and we pray that tonight we would do what we should do. We will listen and then we will trust it and obey it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting uh, into a new part of the Bible today. As Brendan's already mentioned, we've been in Matthew's Gospel for what seemed like an eternity, uh, but uh, we're finished Matthew's Gospel now. Last week, we looked at uh, the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, one of the great passages in the Bible. Uh, it's a great way to finish it. Unfortunately, I missed it. I was away on holidays, but uh, now we're back into it. We're starting the book of Hebrews. And I must admit, I am a bit daunted as we start, because uh, Hebrews is not the easiest book in the Bible. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone until this morning, because whenever you say something like this, someone says, hey, what about me? But uh, I hadn't met until this morning anyone who says that their favourite book of the Bible is Hebrews. And then I said that and someone came up to me afterwards and said it was. But in fact, I don't think many people put it in their top five books. And without wanting to put you off for the next term, I think that's because Hebrews can seem a bit complicated. Uh, it can seem a bit harder to read than other books in the Bible. And one of the reasons for that is that it is full of references to the Old Testament. So if you've got Hebrews open, if you've got it there, uh, and you look just across the, like, the first two pages, chapter 1, 2 and 3, do you see all the bits in bold there? They're all quoting the Old Testament. That's, that's how our Bible shows that it's from the Old Testament. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that makes it hard for us is sadly, most modern Christians don't know their Old Testaments very well certainly not as well as previous generations of Christians. So that makes Hebrews sometimes a bit hard for people to read. More than that, this book is a bit mysterious. Uh, Unlike other letters in the New Testament, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. So you know when you look at, you know, Ephesians or Colossians or some of those other letters, it starts off, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And straight away, this is, oh, this is by the apostle Paul. Well, Hebrews doesn't start like that. So look at the first four verses, just get straight into it. Uh, The only hint is that he mentions he hangs around with Timothy right at the end of the book. Uh, So it's often assumed, in fact, the early church just always assumed it was written by the Apostle Paul. That's gone out of fashion because modern scholars say, oh, it doesn't read like Paul's other letters. I take that with a grain of salt myself. I sort of think if you read one of my essays from law school and compared it to my sermons now, you'd say they were different authors as well. But, uh, uh, But for that reason, people think it was one of Paul's offsiders working with him, someone like Barnabas or Apollos, who you meet in Acts and 1 Corinthians and books like that. We don't know, though, because it doesn't tell us. But from the earliest times, it's been accepted as part of the New Testament, as part of God's Word. It also doesn't tell us who it's written to. So again, when you look at other letters in the, the New Testament, it says, I, Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church in Rome or Colossae or Philippi or wherever... This doesn't tell us who it's written to. It gets called the letter to the Hebrews, uh, but that's actually not in the letter itself. Nowhere does it refer to the Hebrews in the, uh, in the letter. It gets called that because it seems like it was written to Jewish Christians, hence Hebrews. That's why it gets that name. But again, that just adds another reason why it's a bit more complicated. You don't have all that background information from the book of Acts and that sort of thing you do when you look at a, a letter like Corinthians or Ephesians or so forth. So why do we want to put the effort into studying Hebrews? And we're doing it both on Sundays and in our gospel teams on Wednesday nights as well. We're really going to plumb the depths of this book. Why put the effort in? Well, it's because Hebrews is written to deal with what I think is one of the most important topics we could ever deal with. In fact, it's the most important thing you need to hear and I need to hear. I want you to just think for a moment, what is the saddest thing in the world? Sorry to put a downer on your Sunday night, but... 
What, is, what, what makes you sadder than anything else? So, uh, you might immediately think of, you know, the images we're seeing uh, on our TV screens of war in the Ukraine or Yemen or places like that. You might think of poverty uh, and people starving and so forth. But I think all Christians in the end, surely, it's when we look at our world and we see there are just so many people who do not know Jesus. That's the saddest thing. I think I actually often block that reality out of my mind so I cope, often. You know what I mean? I just focus on the football or whatever else because it is overwhelming. But sometimes as I sit in a cafe or I sit on the train, I look around, I am just struck as I look at all these people walking around, living their lives without hope. So many people in our world without hope. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They do not know Jesus. And more than that, they don't know what's coming. They don't know that Jesus is returning. They are blind to their need for salvation. That, more than anything else, makes me grieve. But sadder still is when you see people and you know people who have heard the gospel a thousand times, who even used to say, I'm a Christian, who sat with us in God's church, perhaps, but now they have walked away. I hate looking at old church roles. Sometimes people come and say, I've got the old church role from 20 years ago. You know, let's have a look at that. And I, I, there's parts that are encouraging, but other times you look at it and you look at that person and you say, where are they now? They no longer follow Jesus. They are no longer following Jesus. They're no longer with us. I'm not talking about people who've, who've gone to be with the Lord. I'm not talking about people who've moved and gone to another church. I'm not talking about the wonderful times where we've sent people out into the mission field or to plant churches or to Bible college. I'm talking about where they have walked away from Jesus. And for some of us, that sadness is so personal because it is people in our own families. You know, for some people in our church, it's their own children or their own parents, it's their own brothers, their own sisters. For me, some of the people who were instrumental in me growing as a young Christian, some of the people who had the biggest impact on me when I first became a Christian in discipling me and helping me grow... They no longer follow Christ. Isn't that the saddest thing in the world? And we do not want that for ourselves or for anyone in our church. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians who have been following Jesus for some time. It's written to Christians who have actually even suffered for their faith. These are not, you know, uh, just been Christians. So they're people who people would have called full-on Christians. You know, you sometimes use that phrase. They're people who people would have said that about them but they've started to drift and they're in danger of giving up on Jesus. And for them, the temptation was to turn back to Old Testament religion, to turn back to Judaism. The temptation for them was to go back to the temple, to go back to priests, to go back to animal sacrifices and that sort of thing. But this letter is written to say, stop drifting away because if you drift away from Jesus, you lose everything. And that's why Hebrews is so relevant to us today. It's why, even though it's hard, I want us to grapple with it for the next term, uh, because it is just as easy for us to drift away as it was for them 2,000 years ago. I don't think, though, any of us are tempted to return to the temple. The temple isn't there if you try and return to it, for one thing, that's the problem. But I don't think any of us are, are tempted to return to Old Testament religion of sacrifices and that sort of thing. For us, though, it's the lure of the world. It's the lure of an easy path of a world that says, just live how you want to live, it doesn't matter. Or sometimes, for people today, the issue is when we face suffering in our life and we start to question, is God loving? Does he actually care about me? 
Sadly, for some people, it's bad church experiences. It's because Christians let them down that they start to doubt and drift. But often, in my experience, it's just a drift. People don't even know it's happening. They just get out of the habit of church, first of all. And then over time, Jesus drifts out of mind from the front to the back. And before you know it, he's gone. And after a while, Christianity was just a phase they went through. Well, Hebrews is written to stop that happening to you. That's why we're looking at it. It's written to keep you trusting Jesus. It's a word of exhortation. Don't give up on Jesus. And that's why it's so good for us to look together at it this term. That's enough of an introduction though. Let's get into the opening four verses of the book. I'd love you to have the Bible open. So if you didn't take that offer of Renee bringing you a Bible before, put up your hand now and Renee will get one to you uh, as I get into it because we're only looking at four verses tonight, but I think they are one of the richest little paragraphs in the whole Bible, just these four verses. So open up, Hebrews 1, look with me from verse 1, it says, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now straight away, the first thing to see here and my first point, the first thing is our God speaks. You do not search for God. You don't go on a journey and and try and find God. God is not mysterious and hidden. He's not a mystery that needs solving. God has revealed himself by speaking. This is so important. The Bible is not words written about God. It's not people who've seen God do stuff and, and it's not their record of what they've seen. That is not what it is. It is God's word. God has spoken Our job, as I prayed at the start, is to listen, to trust, and to obey. But God has spoken what we call progressively. He didn't just give us the full picture, he spoke progressively. Long ago, in the past, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets, it says. That's talking about the Old Testament. The fathers are people like Noah, and Abraham, and Jacob, and Isaac, and Moses, and Joshua, and David, and Daniel, and whoever else you can think of in the Old Testament. All those people who trusted God before Jesus came. And the prophets who he spoke to, that's people like Moses, and Elijah, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Malachi, and all those people. And they spoke the very words of God. When they spoke, it was God speaking through them. And he spoke through them in various ways. Sometimes he gave words of warning. Sometimes he gave words of love. Sometimes he gave words of grace. Sometimes he gave words of judgment. Sometimes he spoke in poetry, like the Psalms. Sometimes in wisdom, like the Proverbs. God has never been silent. God has always been, right through history, revealing himself to his people. But now, now in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. What do you think of when you hear the words, the last days? You see what it says there in these last days? What do you think of when you hear the words, the last days? I think lots of people think that's something in the future. And they think it's crazy stuff, like the sky going red and dark and and armies doing strange battles and and, and an apocalypse, as we call it, and all, all that sort of Armageddon and that sort of thing. They think that's the crazy stuff that will happen just before Jesus comes back. That's what people who didn't listen during our series on Revelation last year think, anyway. But no, the Bible says we are in the last days now, because the last days started when God spoke his greatest and final revelation to humanity by sending his son into the world. 
God has spoken once and for all his final word through his son who we meet in the New Testament. Jesus is God's great and final word. Now, before we go and look at why that's true, I just want to draw out a couple of things from that fact. Now, come up on the screen. The first is, this is why we don't need any new revelation from God. Now, God can do whatever he wants. It's not up to me to tell God what he can or can't do. If God wants to speak to someone, he can. But we should not expect new words from God when he has already given his final word. So you don't, when you say, I want to listen to God speak, that doesn't mean go and sit in a quiet place and see if anything comes into mind. You, you don't listen to God by waiting for a voice in the silence, by, by, by trying to interpret a dream. You, you listen to God by opening the Bible, because God has spoken. And if someone does claim to have a word from God, or you feel that God has spoken to you, you test it against his final word. It doesn't have authority the Bible is the authority, you test it and you only listen if it's consistent with that word. God has spoken already once and for all, we do not need something else, we have his word. That's so important to understand. Next point I just want to make quickly, and sorry this is a bit like a lecture as we start to get us ready for the book of Hebrews, but that next thing is, does that, this raises the question, is the Old Testament obsolete? If God spoke in the past that way but now he's spoken by his son, why do we bother with the Old Testament? Why are we going to have a series on two kings next term, other than because there's great stories about bears attacking people and that sort of thing? But you know, if, you, if you've got the new edition, why do you bother with the old edition, people say? Well, to think like that is to misunderstand the old and the new words of God, the old and the new testaments. Uh, it's not that God spoke one word and then changed his mind and decided to give us a better word. Sadly, that is how many Christians seem to think about the Old Testament. Every year, I run our Intro to the Bible course in Term 4, it's an ad for it, even though it's a couple of terms away, where we look at how the whole Bible fits together and people come and when I ask them, they say, oh, well, the Old Testament, it's about an angry God who, who says you're saved by works and it's about judgment. And then they say the New Testament is about love and grace and forgiveness as if that was the old word and we needed a better, nicer, new word. No, the old and the new are both actually all about all of those things. See, God's word doesn't change because God's character doesn't change. See, what God hated back in the Old Testament, he hates in the New Testament. And what God loved in the Old Testament, he loves in the New Testament. Now, you see, the difference is the Old Testament is looking before the fact the New Testament is the fact. You see, the Old Testament was looking forward. It was about the promises of God, whereas Jesus, the New Testament, is about the fulfillment of those promises. F.F. F. Bruce, he's a great Bible scholar, he puts it this way, it'll come up on the screen. He says, divine revelation is thus seen to be progressive, but the progression is not from the less true to the more true, or from the less worthy to the more worthy, or from the less mature to the more mature. How could it be so when there's one and the same God who is revealed throughout? The progression is one from promise to fulfilment. As I said, I'm sorry this is a bit of a lecture tonight as I get us ready to study Hebrews, but this is so important. See, the old, this isn't saying the Old Testament is useless. This isn't saying don't bother with the Old Testament now that you've got the new. The Old Testament actually helps you understand Jesus in a way you never would without it. See, I don't actually think you can understand Jesus and the gospel without the Old Testament. 
When Jesus says, I died for your sins, when we talk about how Jesus died for our sins, that's meaningless unless you understand the Old Testament sacrifices and how that set up the idea that we are sinners who need a price paid to pay the cost for our sin, to turn aside God's anger. When we say Jesus stands between us and the Father as a mediator, you only understand that when you get the Old Testament idea of a priest who did that job, but just nowhere near as well as Jesus does it. The Old Testament is not obsolete. It's wonderful and it's beautiful, but it needs God's final word, Jesus, to complete it, to make you understand it properly. And in fact, the Old Testament is essential for understanding God's final word in Jesus. As I said before, I'm sorry I'm getting a bit lectury there. I'm trying to lay the groundwork for our studies over the next few weeks. But now let's come back to our passage. So come back with me, Hebrews 1. This all begs the question, why is Jesus the final and complete revelation of God? What makes him different to the prophets who spoke God's word in the past? And that's what brings us to our last two and a half verses that might just, I think, be the most theologically rich couple of verses in the Bible. Why is Jesus God's final and complete word? Well, what he does is he just rattles off these incredible truths. I've put out seven of them on your outline. He rattles off these incredible truths about Jesus that show you why. And I can only touch on each of them. I want you in your gospel teams to grapple with them more deeply, to think more uh, about the significance of each of them. Because what he's actually trying to do here, I think, is not at this point get you to think thoroughly about each one. That's what the rest of the book's for. What he's doing is like the shotgun approach. He's just sort of hitting you with all these bullets to make you realise this is Jesus. This is how wonderful he is. And it's overwhelming when they all hit you at once. So come with me to them. Firstly, verse 2, it says, The Son is the heir of all things. What he's saying is everything that God owns. What does God own? Everything. So everything, which is everything that God owns, he has given to Jesus. And we don't get this. Because in our culture, when someone dies, they write a will and almost invariably it gets divided equally amongst the children. That's the way it works, doesn't it? And the modern world, if, if you don't get as much as your brother and sister, what modern people do is they take it to court and get the will changed so they get an equal share. That is not how most of history has worked. Most of history, the oldest son gets the lot and the younger one, and I'm glad history has changed because I'm a youngest son, the youngest son gets nothing. So I won't ask guys to put up their hands because they get embarrassed about this, but girls can. Who, who has read Jane Austen novels and, and seen Pride and Prejudice and all those sort of things? And a few guys who are not proud and they're willing to put up their hands with me. Uh, I studied Jane Austen in the HSC. There you go. As, as an elective, I chose it. Wow. <laughs> Sorry to ruin your, my reputation. But in Jane Austen novels... That's, that's the world that it was in 1800s England, that, that the oldest son gets along. That's why, do you always see in the novel, the second son, what does he do? He goes into the army because he's got to get a living somehow because he's not getting an inheritance. And the third son, even if he doesn't believe in God, what does he become? A clergyman. That's because that's the job for the third son. So there you go. But you see, that's because the oldest son gets the lot. Well, that's the picture here in the Bible. The father, that is God, gives everything... That is the whole universe and everything and everyone in it to the Son. That's why Jesus is more than a prophet. There is no prophet who owns everything. Secondly, verse 2 again, God made the universe through the Son. So it's not like God randomly chose his Son to be the heir. 
that the Son has been with the Father from the beginning. You go back and read Genesis 1 this week and you see in it that God the Father is, is not alone. The Word is with Him and the Word is another name for the Son. And when God said, let there be light and there was light, the Son was there with the Father. Look at how John 1 verse 3 puts it. Thanks, Brad. It says, all things were created through him, that is the Son, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. See, no prophet was there before the world was created, only the Son. Next, verse 3, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. And now we're really getting to the crux of it. Jesus was not just a prophet speaking God's words. He wasn't even just a reflection of God. He wasn't just like God. He wasn't a mini God. He wasn't pointing to God. He is God. When you look at the Son, you are seeing God. That's what Jesus claimed. When you listen to the Son, you are hearing God speak. Look at John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but then the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. That's why he is the final revelation. What other word do you need when God himself has revealed himself to you? Fourthly, look at verse 3 again. I told you this, keep coming one after the other. The Son sustains all things by his powerful word. There is nothing that happens in this world that is out of control of the Son. The laws of science only work because the sun says so. The sun, S-U-N, only came up this morning because the sun, S-O-N, said the sun should come up this morning. The, the trees only grow leaves because Jesus said so. That is the one who has spoken, no mere prophet. Fifthly, verse 3 again, it says, he provides purification for sins. And here is the real wonder of it all. The Son of God, the one who made the universe, the one who sustains the creation, the one who is the radiance of God's glory, came and became a human being and died in our place to purify us from sin. In fact, so much of the rest of the book of Hebrews is about that fact, that Jesus has purified us from our sin. So, What other word from God do we need once we know the one who has done that for us? Sixthly, look at verse 3 again. It says, the son is seated at the father's right hand. Jesus didn't just die on the cross and stay dead. God validated his death. God, Romans 1, 4 says, God declared him with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And now Jesus sits in the heavens at the father's right hand from where he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is the one who has spoken to us. And then lastly, verse 4 he is greater than the angels. That one sort of throws us a little bit because we sort of think, well, I wasn't really thinking about angels, but thanks anyway. But, uh, and I'll leave why that matters for next week in chapter one so as not to steal next week's sermon's thunder. But the very, at the very least, it's making the point, think of the craziest, most out of this world, most powerful entity you can think of. For you, that might be like Thor from the Marvel comics or something, but, but for them, it was angels. Think of that and Jesus is higher than them. That is the one who has spoken. So wrapping it up and closing death, closing us for the night. That is the son. And that is why he is God's final and complete revelation. Now, as I say, I want you to grapple more with what each of those seven things means in your gospel teams. I'd love you to explore that as we look at the book of Hebrews over the next term together. But I want to close by saying, why is that so important? Why is, as we start this book, does it give us this incredible picture of Jesus 
in all his glory. Well, it comes back to where we started and that question I asked you at the start. Why is this being written for us? It's to stop us giving up on Jesus. And the point is, if this is the Jesus who you have come to know, how on earth could you possibly give him up to follow someone or something else? If this is the Jesus you have come to know, how could you possibly not want to keep living for him? If this is the Jesus who you've come to trust in, the one who is the heir of all things, the one who created the universe, the one who sustains the universe, the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the one who purified you from your sins, the one who now rules the universe, if that is the Jesus you have come to know, how could you drift away from following him to follow something else? How could you drift away from following him and trusting him and loving him and knowing him? See, later in the book, we're going to see what you might call the negative encouragements. It's a nice way of saying the warnings. If you give up on Jesus, this is what you're missing out on. This is the judgment that comes. And if you give up on Jesus, you have no hope. And sometimes we need that, don't we? Sometimes we need the stick rather than the carrot. But as the book starts, it's the positive encouragement. Basically, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is saying, how good is Jesus? How good is Jesus? Why would you ever give up on following him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but you have spoken to us most wonderfully through your Son. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture of who it is that we follow, the one who is the radiance of your glory, the one who died for our sins, the one who is greater than anyone or anything we could ever think of following. So, Father, we pray that we would not drift away from trusting in him, but instead we would continue to love him and follow him always. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.